Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen. uh... Can I please have your attention? Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, very excited about uh, today's guest. Um, I basically have two guests, maybe three if you include Tevi, who I can just say, can you come on and we'll figure out what to talk about, or we'll just figure it out as we go kind of thing. Uh, one is Chris Starwalt, but I've had a lot of Starwalt lately. And the other is um, the lovely and talented Sarah Isger. Um, and, um, fortunately today we talked beforehand and we, we hammered out a very strict schedule of what we're going to talk about. She wants to spend the whole hour talking about whether or not Ukraine should be admitted to the EU. I didn't, <laughs> it took me by surprise because she's usually not that into foreign policy stuff, but she got very strong views on this. She really wants uh-huh. to get into the nitty gritty and I'm uh-huh. just going to let her run with that. So Sarah Esger, my colleague from the dispatch, the host of the advisory opinions podcast, which weirdly has degenerated into sort of a legal Tinder dating app, but that's a subject for another time. Um, Sarah, uh, you have no idea how many emails I'm getting asking me to set up people with other AO listeners in various cities. I feel like we're missing a marketing, like a business opportunity here. Like why haven't we turned dispatch into like a side hustle dating app for all of these, you know, remnants who want to find their paired remnant. What is a remnant with another remnant? Like two remnants. Um, to make remnant babies. It's a larger remnant. Yeah, I mean. Right, I think remnant, uh, there's a term for, I'm sure in grammar, but you know, a collective noun or whatever. Yeah. Right? So it's like uh, a herd is still a herd whether you add one horse to it or distract one horse to it. It's a smaller or larger herd with a smaller or larger remnant. Yeah. So we said all that. So thanks for being here and um, really appreciate it. Talk to you next time. No, uh, <laughs> uh, we should tell listeners that that uh, apparently you guys, um, the, 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 the fraction of listeners who do not listen to advisory opinion, uh, who that you for some reason have gotten into this dating advice thing. And it's um, and it's a, uh, it's, it's taking on a life of its own. So, um, what's your best dating advice? Uh, true, true story. Um, uh, our own Declan Garvey got recently married and to a lovely lady who's the most overqualified cat sitter I have ever hired. Um, she's pursuing both an MD and a PhD simultaneously. In cat sitting, interestingly uh, enough. Amazingly so. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew that Georgetown had a specialty, but, um, they had, a on the, RSVP thing for the wedding. They would like give some marriage advice. And mine was happy, happy wife, happy life. And Jessica was, which you'll appreciate. If he won't clean up 
hire someone who will. <laughs> um, and uh, but Steve, he like agonized over what his would be. Uh, Steve, our own Steve Hayes, and he, his advice was keep dating. Oh, that is good advice. He meant it as like they should keep dating each other, which is very sweet and very Hallmark <laughs> card. But it read like... Just keep seeing what's out there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you have options. <laughs> um, no fault divorce being what it is in the country. It's barely a commitment at this point. <laughs> so he had to file an amended statement about what his advi marriage advice was. Um, I don't know. What kind of dating advice are you looking for? Not for yourself, but for, you know, the youngins. I don't know. Like, we have a three-month-old, so maybe I do need dating advice for myself. We're <laughs> <laughs> uh, in that, like, the cuteness, the immediate, like, oh, my God, we made a baby. It's so cute. is wearing off. And we're now um, in the, like, I think the jury would convict me right now. But, like, could I get one holdout? If she has a three-month-old, I think I could. Yeah. Um, for killing your husband, not your baby. Yeah, very much yeah. the husband. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I feel like we often talk about feminism when I'm on this podcast. And I think um, I've perhaps talked to you about how I think the greatest um, feminist achievement of the last 20 years is probably Elizabeth Holmes' conviction. Like mm -hmm. to have a young woman with so much ambition, be able to defraud men out of hundreds of millions of dollars is actually like, and I actually mean this, it would have been unthinkable 40 years ago for any of that story to have happened. Um, and so it actually does show you the like, yeah, like that's a glass ceiling all on its own, like breaking into the true big white collar crime. Like Martha Stewart insider trading, that's the equivalent of, you know, poisoning your husband. Like, Mm -hmm. l l women poison, right? That's what they do they, for for murders. Um, but like, you really want to see a good stabbing. And that's when you're like, ah, equality of the sexes. So you know how like they um, called the, uh, I want to say the, the early communists in the 1930s, they called themselves premature anti-fascists or something like that. Are you saying that Lorena Bobbitt was... Uh, <laughs> Before her time and sort of in breaking glass ceilings, as it were, for, for, for the ladies. Do you remember the cultural response to Lorena Bobbitt? I do. I thought it was unfortunate in many ways. Um, but there was a reason that women were like, hell yeah. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that that's good, obviously. But there's a reason that it wasn't like, oh, tisk tisk. Like she was seen as sort of a feminist icon there for a little bit. Yeah, no, that's true. And also the burning bed thing. I mean, there was this, you know, it was sort of like a feminist Hamas kind of arguments, but... Um, yeah, I mean, the I'm going to, people are going to make fun of me because like, I think they're all going to know what this is, like all the names and everything. And I don't, but you know, the, the astronaut lady who wore the diaper to go mm -hmm. kill her man, like that was some commitment to the cause. It was. Liz Lemon in 30 Rock was, say what you will about her. That was a woman with a plan. <laughs> <laughs> when you can't even stop for bathroom breaks because that's how much you don't want him to have that extra seven minutes on the planet <laughs> <laughs> all right we should have uh i'm sure we'll come back to frivolity and jocularity but we should uh we should start covering stuff so like i'm i'm very frustrated with the hunter biden 
stuff. Cause on the one hand, I feel like the amount of work it would require me to get back up to speed on it is, uh, I, I, I kind of resent. And at the same time, from what I have gleaned, my basic view, which I got Frank Foer when he was on here, you know, the guy who wrote the book about the Biden administration, he was like, yeah, I can't really disagree with that. And my basic view is Hunter Biden's incredibly corrupt. And I just don't mean like morally and, you know, and drug addiction. All I mean, like his whole business enterprise was at the very least gray area and also clearly about influence peddling. I mean, that's what it was. But influence peddling in and of itself is not against the law. There's a lot of influence peddling in Washington, D.C. Now, there may be a legal definition of influence peddling that is against the law. I'm sure there is, right? But generally speaking, like taking money from foreign people to convince Congress or a bureaucrat to do something in and of itself is not um, against the law. Being and a Nepo baby is not against the law yet. Being a Nepo baby is not against the law. And so what seems kind of obvious to me is that in late 2016, as they're packing up boxes in the White House, Biden had no intention of ever running for president. And he and his fairly corrupt brother and corrupt son starts setting up this business thing where he is going to be this elder statesman of, of high-minded influence peddling. Right. And that's what the China thing at the university was. That's what a bunch of stuff was. And some of that may have crossed the line somewhere, but he was a lame duck vice president and he was just getting, you know, the next chapter of his life together. And, and then he did do like real influence peddling stuff, or at least Hunter did on his behalf and how much connectivity there is. I don't know, which is all gross and unseemly, but not necessarily against the law. And, um, and what the Republicans have tended to do is decontextualize the timeline to make it sound like Biden was, that Hunter was collecting bribes from foreign powers while Biden was vice president to change policy, which would be impeachable and against the law. So I'm sure I'm missing some other aspects of it, but that's my big picture of it is that Hunter is a corrupt, skeevy dude. Biden's stu uh, dad stuff was unseemly. The brother's stuff is unseemly. Um, and there may even be crimes somewhere in there, but it's not the grand, um, foreign bribery, collusion, corruption, Biden crime family thing that a lot of people are making it out to be. Is that fair? Um, oh, and the, and the Biden special counsel investigation is kind of like a slow walking fake investigation to a certain extent, but that's, we can take those as two separate claims. Yeah, Where let me I take wrong? your first one, because I think I do disagree on the margins of that. And let me tell you some of the places where I would have changed the emphasis. Um, Joe Biden thought that Hillary Clinton would win in 2016 and that he would never run for president. That's true. Mm -hmm. But as soon as she lost, he certainly knew he was running for president. And that's going to be an important moment in your timeline because sure. while they had decided to make boatloads of money based on his last name, something that, by the way, the Clintons had done, um, the Obamas had done, though, again, not from foreign governments, um, like making money after your president, not unusual and coming up with how you're going to do that fair enough. And of course, because Joe Biden's relying on his son and brother to sort of come up with this, like it was always going to be gross and skeezy. 
But at the point that she loses and he knows he's running for president again, it does take on a bit of a different tenor, don't you think? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because all the money is going to get collected when he's not vice president, but now knows he's running for president again in a few years. Okay, so that's one area that I disagree for. So, okay, but so are you basing this entirely plausible (laughs) um, claim that the moment Hillary lost, he knew he was running for president. Are you basing that on some reporting or is that just because that's who Joe Biden is? He always wanted to be president and and you're just assuming it's the case. And that's how long it takes to run for president. Yeah. Like, could he have made the decision six months after what I'm talking about? Sure, but not much after that. Okay, fair. Um, You know, it takes about three years to really do the whole thing. And like the idea that you'd spent the fourth pre-year being like, well, I don't know. Like, of course he knew. Um, I'm sure, yeah, all sorts of things. So the other part that I think is more important that I disagree with, and we probably don't disagree on this. I think you just left it out. Mm-hmm. Of what we know now, of the evidence we have now, everything you said is true, but there's lots of things we don't know yet, I guess is sure. what I would say. So yes, of the evidence we have now, you end up with sort of this skeezy influence peddling, taking money from foreign governments when he's not vice president, all the things you said. But we don't know about what really was going on with Hunter and the brother while he was vice president. Mm -hmm. And we also don't know what promises were made, like stuff that could actually cross the line, even in that interregnum period between vice presidency and presidency. So everything you said was correct on that in terms of the evidence we have now. But I feel like, um, you know, a pox on everyone's house for not caring more to find more. Because, right, the Republicans don't really want to find more because they're afraid they won't find it. Mm -hmm. So they don't have a lot of interest because they already think either they don't think they'll find it or they think they've already found it, whatever. Like, it's not the most competent congressional investigation I've ever seen. Democrats have no interest, obviously, in finding out whether Biden was corrupt. It reminds me in a totally different way, but of the Clinton stuff, right? Like, wait 20 years and then we'll condemn the rape. Right, right, right. Um, I don't doubt that if there is there there that Democrats, when Biden is no longer eligible to run for president, will condemn the whole thing as being super corrupt. But right now, it's a little like the George Santos problem within the Republican Party. Like, you want to know why McCarthy and Elise Stefanik and all these leadership people didn't vote to expel George Santos? You think it's because they like George Santos? No, they hate him. They think he's a clown. But they also have a five-seat majority. And, you know, a seat here, a seat there. And all of a sudden, Mike Johnson ain't speaker anymore. So yeah, they were willing to keep George Santos in for that buffer. Same thing, right? They may not like Biden. They may wish they had a different nominee. But like right now, he's it. They can't take him down and risk losing the 2024 election. Um, So they'll worry about the corruption issues later. So is that a a decent addendum to your? Yeah, no, that's 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 totally fair. And, you know, and I will add like I. I think it is entirely possible that Hunter Biden did things like with the gas stuff in Ukraine and Kazakhstan and all that, that never mind China, that should land him in jail. It seems entirely possible. And one of this is a this is a very AO adjacent peeve of mine um, where 
I cannot stand the conversations about this stuff on TV on either side. Um, and one of the peeves I have gets at almost every legal controversy, criminal controversy in politics for the last 25 years, where people will say, first of all, there's only circumstantial evidence. Circumstantial evidence is this thing called evidence. Like <laughs> We use circumstantial like use evidence a, all the time. <laughs> yeah, like they use it in trials a lot because if they had direct proof, the thing wouldn't go to trial, right? If they actually have you on videotape murdering the cashier at the bank, they don't need to provide the circumstantial evidence of seeing you run on camera from the bank, right? And the other thing is people confuse and conflate evidence and proof all the time. So like there's an enormous amount of evidence that Biden is, that Biden did corrupt things. There's an enormous amount of evidence that, um, uh, that Biden lied about what he knew and when he knew it. Now, I think the evidence about him lying is sufficient that you could actually say it proves that he was lying. But then there's the other evidence, which is just, it's, it points in a certain direction. You can rebut its relevance and all that kind of stuff. But people who say there's no evidence, they make it sound like, um, like, well, the, like there's no evidence. <laughs> there's well, a, like, just me, a lot of evidence. Let me give an example that I, I think we're in violent agreement on. There's these various emails or texts from Hunter Biden that will say things like, um, you know, 10% for the big guy or the text he sent to his daughter that is egregious parenting, if we're going to call it that. I'm not sure he really should qualify as a parent. Um, where he's like, at least you don't have to get 50% of your income to your father. <laughs> so that is absolutely evidence, as you say, Jonah. Right. The problem is, how much credibility do you give that evidence when Hunter Biden's also a liar? Right, sure. And so Hunter Biden lying to his daughter totally plausible to me. And so I think when you hear people saying there's no evidence in any situation, OJ or otherwise, uh, there's evidence and I don't find it credible is actually a more accurate statement. I think for me, I would say there's evidence and I don't know whether to find it credible because there's such a plausible narrative that Hunter Biden is so unreliable. I don't know whether he's on drugs when he's sending these text messages. Who knows? Um, I just need more to even know how much credence to give Hunter Biden in his statements against his father right. that he's unwittingly giving. Right. I mean, one way to think of it is if Hunter Biden gave testimony under oath, that's evidence, but a jury can find it not credible. That's right. And that's fine too, right? I mean, that's fine, but it is what it is, right? I mean, there's like evidence. It's like, there's other thing that drives me crazy is you always hear there's no smoking gun, which like, okay. So first of all, if I, if I, or like, or you can't prove that, like when, when, if the cops come to my door and they say, we know you murdered Steve Hayes. Um, and I say, my immediate response is you can't prove that. <laughs> that's, that's not a denial, right? That's a kind of like, that always strikes me as like, I did a really good job hiding the body. You're never going to find it. <laughs> I wore gloves, you know, and the way we talk about like smoking gun is, is like most murderers are not convicted on the basis of smoking gun evidence, right? It's like they're, they're convicted on a huge preponderance of essentially circumstantial evidence. 
that's fine because the circumstantial evidence is persuasive that, that someone committed murder. Anyway, we, in politics, we take advantage of how everybody has been watching crime procedurals too much and they don't actually know what how to process these concepts. They just throw them around. So, Hey, can I ask you a question? You may. Do you think that if O.J. Simpson dies of like a disease, like as a not hit by a bus, but like knows his death is coming, do you think he'll confess or do you think he'll just maintain his quasi innocence all the way? It, de- I, it really depends on what his religious views are. Because why would you confess if you weren't trying to like get past the red rope into heaven? Um, can I bring up a fair, so I, I've been rewatching Seinfeld recently. Yes. And there's this great episode where Elaine is dating uh, a guy named I think it's Jeremy Rifkin, who was a serial killer in New York in the early 90s and really embarrassing to Jews in New York because you're not supposed to have Jewish serial killers or something. And it's like, it's a whole subtext of the thing. Yeah, and, sort of like my Elizabeth Holmes things, actually. Yeah, a little bit. And, um, Assimilation. Um, <laughs> and so Elaine just hates being date, dating a guy. It's like dating a guy named Jeffrey Dahmer. You just like, so she's begging him to change his name. And so this episode of Seinfeld, I think it's in like a ni- late 94. I looked up the date and she's begging him to change, change his name to this. And they're going through a list of names. And then finally she's like, oh, OJ, call yourself OJ. And this is before OJ Simpson was a murderer. So like she meant it sincerely, like it would be a great name to not be associated with murder. Oh my <laughs> God. Like, like six months after this episode of Seinfeld, he goes and murders somebody. I just thought it was. That's like the was, Simpsons uh, level of being able to predict the future. Pretty much. Yeah. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. It's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can 
can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Anything further you want to you wanna throw in here on the pile for, for the Hunter Biden thing? Well, you also mentioned the actual investigation. The special counsel. The, the once in future indictment on the uh, tax and drug charges. Um, and the, sorry, tax and gun charges that's related to the drugs. Uh, that has, boy, turned into almost more of a mess for the Department of Justice than it has for Hunter Biden. I mean, don't get yeah. me wrong. Hunter Biden's the one in actual jeopardy here. But the the backbiting and congressional hearings and everything else on how DOJ has conducted itself in the course of that investigation, mm -hmm. I think is now unfixable. Like it, the narrative's so baked that even if it turns out everyone did everything right and whatever, like I, I think the cat, the horse is already out of the barn on that. And I think it has really undermined DOJ's credibility with the right. Um, now the right was primed to undermine DOJ's credibility. Don't get me wrong. But I hate seeing stuff like that, and it really bothers me. It was a yeah, cell phone. Just, I'm, I'm just not. Um, it just feels like the what's the special counsel's name guy, the Weiss. Delaware guy, David Weiss. Weiss. Yeah, I mean, it just feels like he was asked to sort of slow walk this stuff to me. But we don't need to get deep in the tea leaves on all of that. Um, um. All right, so where should we go from here? Um, how are you feeling about your bet with Steve Hayes? You know, and just so everyone knows, this is the bet where I originally said that Trump would be the Republican nominee and Steve said, no, he won't. And this was back in um, like a, more than a year ago now. So pre the 2022 election. And then Steve doubled down and said, I also don't think Joe Biden will be the nominee. I was like, yeah, I'll definitely take that. Um, I feel really... And we should say in your defense that like back when you guys made the bet, DeSantis was w pulling ahead of Trump. I mean, he, Trump was not looking good, you know, or as good as he is now. A year Pre-indictment, his poll numbers were not what... Yeah, and this was even before now. anyone was really polling it much, right? I think it yeah. was like August or September of 22... Like people were talking about it, obviously. But um, yeah, there was this like DeSantis rising thing. Uh, and there was a moment where Steve felt pretty good, like right after the 2022 election, where he was like, aha, see? And I've maintained my confidence throughout. I still maintain my confidence. There's always been this problem of when you're talking about two dudes who are this age, Steve may sort of win with God's help. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That will be annoying because it won't then really be the brilliance of Steve's political mind so mm -hmm. much as actuarial tables. Okay. So like if that happens, I'll be annoyed, uh, but I don't, I mean, just again, actuarially, 
It actually is unlikely to happen. It's just more possible than for other people. Uh, So I feel pretty good. I certainly, certainly, you know, this idea that like Joe Biden's gonna, at the State of the Union, surprise announce he's not running for president is a real misunderstanding of who Joe Biden is in my view. This idea that Joe Biden is this avuncular, kind-hearted, sweetheart of a person is just not what people will tell you who actually spend time around him. Yells at his staff. He's considered an a-hole. And he's incredibly self-absorbed without a whole lot to back it up. As you might imagine, if you've paid attention to any part of Joe Biden's career. I mean, Jonah, you're such a fan of pointing out every time there's one of these OMG, Joe Biden has lost it moments. They're like, nope, that's what he sounded like in the 80s, y'all. Yeah. Like, that's sort of what I think of Joe Biden's personality. Like, would you guys think he had a personality transplant when he became a grandfather? He didn't. He's the same dude who, like, you know, is all hat, no cattle when it comes to his own abilities. Um, So yeah, of course, he's going to run for president again. And this isn't like, oh, why isn't his family supporting him to not run? Like, because it wouldn't matter. He wants to run again. Again, acts of God aside, I feel very good about that side of the bet. It helps also that there's no obvious next, right? It, the Kamala Harris problem looms so large that even if there were an act of God, it's like Kamala Harris or bust. This idea that Gavin Newsom is going to just be able to like come in and everyone can get behind him and ignore Harris is not the reality on the ground. It may be the political reality that we all know, but it's not how that will work. So because the Democratic Party's in a bind, they're way better off with Biden than anyone else they could. And yeah, I get Joe Biden is down in the polls right now. I think that is misleading people. Joe Biden is down in the polls right now because Democrats are less happy with Joe Biden than Republicans are with Donald Trump. Wait till you get to September. Wait till there's a billion dollars spent and those Democrats come home, so to speak, the numbers I think will actually, it'll be a dead heat um, after Labor Day is my prediction. So two things. The short one first, I think you're underappreciating the the power and the importance of, of Gavin Newsom's hair. Um, and then secondly. <laughs> the hair creeps me um, out. Isn't that weird? Um, but I'm married to someone uh, without hair. Um. So we're recording this on a Tuesday morning and the Atlantic has come out with this big 24 contributor issue about how terrible the next Trump administration would be. Obviously, I think both of us are sympathetic to one extent or another with most of the arguments in there, even though we haven't read it. Right. Yep. Um, um, and now the New York Times this morning has a fall as a similar piece about how terrible it will be. Um, None of these arguments are particularly new to either of us. Um, But it does seem like people have settled on, in part because of this, uh, Robert, was it Robert Kagan? Had a piece in the Washington Post about how Trump setting himself up to be a dictator. And I have very conflicting feels about all of this. And, um, um, but I am curious, first of all, what do you think of it on the merits? And second of all, whether or not you think politically the dictator talk actually hurts Trump the way a lot of these people think it does. Because, like, the indictment stuff 
has not hurt Trump. And the more, I want to say, I don't want to say extreme because I, there might be real merit to the dictator accusations, but the more extreme sounding, the more histrionic sounding the criticisms of Trump are, the more normal Republicans rally around Trump. Yes. And so a lot of the sort of reassuring, let's tell the MSNBC audience exactly what it wants to hear about Trump stuff actually helps Trump. Um, and so I'm wondering if politically how you think this stuff plays out. I just can't emphasize enough that the more extreme, the more histrionic, as you said, the warnings about Trump. Here's what a Republican hears. A, they're hearing echoes of, uh, you know, George Bush is racist, John McCain is racist, Mitt Romney is racist. Oh, that didn't work anymore? Well, now we're going to say that they're fascists. They're all fascists. Now we're going to say... Which, just for their historical record, they said about Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon. So yeah. anyway, what's old is new again here. And now it's like, oh, he's going to be a dictator. And so Republicans are hearing like, oh, um, you have no evidence for that. And maybe asterisk that for a second because we can come back to it. But um, you're saying that for political reasons. You're saying it because uh, like the hedonic treadmill of fear, like your old threats aren't working to turn out your voters as much. So you're just having to like up the dosage. That's what Republicans are hearing. And as you said, like there's actually a lot of evidence for that. That as like previous threats sort of lose their traction, you just make bigger and more salacious threats about what will happen if a Republican wins. And again, they've undermined their own case so much by, for instance, supporting the extreme primary candidates against the Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump. Not to mention, of course, rooting for Donald Trump in the 2016 primary, um, these media outlets that gave him endless coverage in the 2016 era, all of that. So like, if you really thought he was this big of a threat, you'd be acting differently is also what Republicans hear. And I think there's a lot to that, honestly, but it also doesn't mean that it's wrong. Right. And that's the fear. You subtract January 6th, which I know is a big subtraction, <laughs> but subtract January 6th for a second. And we heard a whole lot of the threat that Donald Trump was during his first term. And while I think everyone knows what I think of Donald Trump's first term as president, a lot of those things did not come to pass. And certainly none of the most extreme ones came to pass. Now, the reason I, you can't subtract January 6th, of course, is because I think that you can have an actual disagreement on what Donald Trump's purpose on January 6th was. I think that there's an argument, of course, that Donald Trump wanted to remain in office by all means necessary. He was ignoring the Constitution, um, et cetera, et cetera. But there's another, I guess, less apocalyptic version of January 6th where Donald Trump just wanted a whole bunch of people to love him. And that's how they showed their love. And he accepted that token of love. <laughs> I, is that like a weird way to say it? But like, this has always been about Donald Trump. It's actually not so much that I think he wants to be president or even has some vision for what he wants to do. 
in that sense, he's very much not Hitler. Um, Hitler had a plan, man. It was an evil plan, but he had policies. He had a plan. He knew what he wanted to do in power and he wanted the power. Donald Trump has a different psychological profile. So that's all to say, January 6th was really bad and it was the fruition of some of those apocalyptic predictions. I also think that it's a little hard for me to give credit to the people who predicted that Donald Trump wouldn't peacefully leave office because they said a whole bunch of other things that didn't come true and then they happened to be right about that one. Like, were they just so much better at predicting Donald Trump? Or did they just keep saying these horrible things are going to happen and then one of them happened? I kind of think more of the latter. So now that those same people are saying, I predicted January 6th and now I'm predicting this horrible thing. Um, you know, you sort of have to get multiple predictions, right? In my book, it's like the, you know, billionaires who create one company. It's like, well, I don't know that you were that brilliant for thinking of that idea. Lots of people have ideas. It's the timing that matters. It's the funding. It's all sorts of other things. Now you create two or three businesses that make a billion dollars or whatever, um, or you bet on the stock market crashing multiple times. Like when you have that many people betting, someone's going to bet correctly on the 2008 collapse. You've got to bet correctly multiple times for me to think that you have some insight. So that's a little bit where I am on Donald Trump, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying and I'm I'm perfectly happy to call out various people writing for The Atlantic about being wrong about X, Y, or Z. That's fine. I was wrong about X, Y, or Z, according to rumor, too. Um, but um, uh, at the same time, like, there's, I say this with love, there is the, 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 the whiff of, of a kind of whataboutism coming off of it in the sense that, sure, these people are imperfect prognosticators and critics of Donald Trump, as are we all. Yep. Um, that said, I mean, so like one of the things which I thought you were going to bring up, which you, you, you didn't, which I think is an important thing just to remind people is like, so from various reporting, New York Times and elsewhere, and also Trump's incredibly useful uh, true social feed, uh, he wants to try Mark Milley. He wants to try Bill, Bill Barr. Um, I think Rosenstein, I'm not sure. Um, he was not named, but it said other Justice Department officials. So that yeah, could so include Rod. It could include me. Hard to say, yeah. right? So, yeah, you'll be in, in that because we're going to have Napoleon, a criminal code now. So you're going to be in that cage. Yes. Um, in the courtroom, which yes. would be kind of cool. And um, and I will just I, I'm your feminist ally and I'm not trying to make any, you know, sexist claims here. You can pull off the orange jumpsuit better than Bill Barr. I'm just going to oh, say so it. kind. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and so, uh, and the thing that I think must rankle some of these people is how they were all, present company included, accused of being enablers of Trump. When now the exact narrative from both the left and the MAGA right is that these people, you people, were thwarting Trump from fulfilling his his true self, right? I mean, that's the weird thing now. Well, Jonah, is it like depends. Am I trying to get a job? In that case, I was enabling Trump. Are they trying to attack Trump? In that case, I was thwarting Trump. Like, right. 
Yeah, yeah, but like, but like, you know, like, yeah, I mean, I was on CNN yesterday. They're just, there are lots of people out there, you know, saying we're not going to have John Kelly. I mean, I was on with John Carl. And we're not going to have people like John Kelly and Bill Barr holding Trump back, preventing Trump from doing these things. And that's right. But for four years, we were told that these people were enabling Trump to be the worst president ever. And at the same time, that hypocrisy notwithstanding, and I'm not accusing John Carl of hypocrisy, I'm just saying that generally that was the tenor of that kind of talk back then. That said, I think we can both agree that a Trump administration staffed by, you know, people who treat Steve Bannon's War Room podcast as friggin' gospel and all of these sort of fifth-rate poltroons and people who say the Federalist Society is no good anymore because it doesn't know what time it is. That's a recipe for, for double-plus on goodness. And, you know, Brett Devereaux, I, I hope I'm not getting him in trouble, but he was, I was DMing him because I want to get him back on, on the podcast. You guys had him on AO to talk about Game of Thrones warfare, which is totally what you would have on a legal podcast for. And... Um, <laughs> I do what I want. (laughs) (laughs) He makes this point about how, you know, all this talk about, oh, he just wants, Trump just wants vindication and retribution and like he doesn't have grandiose designs beyond that. He says, yeah, well, that was a big part of why Caesar crossed the Rubicon was he wanted to restore his dignitas, his sense of like he felt he was being dissed by Ptolemy, not Ptolemy, what is that, Pompey and those guys. And if Trump gets in there and he has all of these people who are going to say, that's a brilliant idea, sir, when Trump says, let's just take Greenland, that's very different than being surrounded by people who roll their eyes and say, we'll get back to you about Greenland. The people, the litter carriers could aid and abet the concerns about authoritarianism, even if Trump's doesn't see it that way. Yeah. And can I put these stories into two buckets also? So in the one bucket are the anonymous sources say Trump wants to do X. Those stories in particular have proven so wildly unreliable. If you put them all together, uh, less than 10% ever came to fruition. And so they make for really good headlines. They get a lot of clicks. It's in the media's interest to have these anonymous sources saying Trump is going to do an insane thing because we don't know who the source is. Therefore, we cannot judge the credibility of the source, both in terms of how close they are to Trump, their own motivations for wanting to say that. Um, it's why I think we've seen such a rise in anonymous sources in the Trump administration in the first one, because if you knew who they were, they wouldn't have credibility. And so the reporters would rather have them as anonymous sources. That's not the way it used to be. It used to be the reporters would beg for people to not be anonymous. Right. They don't anymore. At least a lot of them don't. So the stories that according to so-and-so that we're never going to find out their name, Trump wants to do X, I give no credibility to. And that includes the like, Donald Trump wants to try Bill Barr, um, you know, and Sarah and Rod or whoever. But there's a different bucket of stories, which is far more like the Atlantic bucket that you're talking about, which is, look, based on everything we've seen, this is the historical similarities. This is what I fear will happen. I think those are more interesting, which is odd because they have no sourcing, right? It's just like, well, I think this looks pretty bad. Um, And yet, for all the reasons you said, Jonah, like we can sort of just like add some logic together. 
the very people who were holding Trump back, but called enablers, and their careers were affected by it, are absolutely not going back. And anyone else who is has a, you know, a good career, making lots of money, they have a family. If they're sane, I mean, it's a catch-22 problem, right? A sane person does not go into a second Trump administration if they have a good job with good income and a family to protect because you don't know what's going to happen in a second Trump administration. So then what are you left with? Like just by logic, you're left with people who we probably don't really want in a lot of these roles. Um, That being said, you know, talk about an institution that hasn't gotten credit. How about the judiciary, right? These same people saying that a 6-3 MAGA Supreme Court with conservative extremists are going to, you know, undermine the Constitution and all these Trump judges are destroying the country. Oh, but those are the very same people that actually preserved the institution against Donald Trump in the wake of the 2020 election. At the time, it was like, oh, well, this is so great that these judges are standing up to Trump. Well, which is it, right? Like, are all their decisions MAGA extreme Trump judge decisions? Or maybe if they were making the right decisions, you thought they were making the right decisions in the wake of the 2020 election, and now you disagree with their decisions, maybe they're just trying to make principled decisions and they actually are preserving the institution of the judiciary. So I would be more interested in stories that talk about which institutions are likely to hold and why um, and which ones aren't than I am about sort of the Trump-pocalypse stuff in general. So and so I, this is this is a very useful point of for segueing for me because I've been thinking about this a lot, right? So um, the, the, the do you know what time it is crowd? And for listeners who don't know what I'm referring to, there is this subset of New right, MAGA right, Claremonster right, you know, there are different tribes, but they, they, they go to the same hotel conferences. Um, this code word, is, this code phrase is, do you know what time it is? And it, and the, the gist of it is, is that it, it's sort of like red pilled, right? Like you see that our institutions are crumbling. It's very Weimar Germany, 1920s talk. Our institutions are crumbling. They can't be saved. So we need to get busy um, hastening the demise of these institutions and then build new ones that restore, you know, American greatness and yada, 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 yada. I mean, I'm, I, I hope I'm not being too, un, too unjustly harsh, just justly harsh on, on the argument. Um, but, um, uh, and so, you know, there was this quote in the New York Times about how the Federal Society they don't want those kinds of lawyers because they don't know what time it is. And um, which, again, when I hear that phrase, I translate it as hail Hydra. And um, but it got, I've been thinking about this a lot. Right. So the problem with claims that our institutions are corrupt is they become self-fulfilling because if you don't have faith and trust in the existing institutions, you don't treat them with faith and trust. And that hastens their demise. And so we talked about this back at the time. And, you know, your point was, okay, great. So we're going to get MAGA lawyers, not federal society lawyers. They're going to be worse lawyers and they're going to lose in court. And I agree with you on that analysis. The problem is, is that losing, it's very much like the loser caucus on the Hill. 
losing is good for the monetization clickbait MAGA crowd because then they get to say, look at these courts. They're part of the deep state. They're part of the yep. vestigial neocon the regime. They, they're the uniparty and they're, they have to be our next target. We need courts that are for America, not against America. And so every defeat, which they get to spin as, you know, they go, they'll go on, you know, Jesse Waters or Steve Bannon and say, look, all we were asking for was that the courts come down on the side of the American people and recognize that we have a border. And they can't do that because they're George Soros-funded open border globalists. And so, sure, you're right. The crappy lawyers will lose, right? The, the, the what's his name from Judicial Watch who's not a lawyer? Fitton? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the Fittons with, with law degrees will lose in court. But that is a win politically and spin-wise for these people. And it will accelerate, I would predict, loss in faith and trust in courts because we know that whenever you can spin something as a partisan defeat, the catastrophists on the right or the left will then say, see, this proves the whole system is corrupt. And that's not good either. Thoughts? Concerns? Disagreement? Yeah, so I agree that's not good, obviously. But I'm not sure that's different than just our general politics right now where both sides are better off being in the minority because they can complain because nobody wants to govern. I mean, this is like my rant on Congress in general. So yeah, maybe it takes on deeper, worse dimensions or whatever in your scenario, but that feels like where we are already. Um, you know, when they win, it's proof of their righteousness. And when they lose, it's proof that the system is rigged and corruption. Which side am I even talking about? Like, it's all of them. Yeah, I, I kind of disagree with you just on basic analytical points is that when Trump's lawyers try to defend their stuff, right? Most of them didn't in 20, in 20, in, for January 6th stuff or the election stuff and all that most of the halfway decent lawyers did not go on TV and attack the judges, right? They did not attack the system. Um, you got Giuliani and, and Powell and a few of those types of people to say things. I heard all sorts of people most, saying these judges uh, threw it out on standing. They didn't even reach the evidence. So it proves nothing about the merits of this case. I agree that they didn't say the judges were corrupt, but they certainly said that the judges were using smoke and mirrors to avoid getting to the meat and that that proved that these judges were cowards. I heard the, the word cowards a lot. From Trump's actuals, actual attorneys or just the... The, the right, the MAGA yeah, right. So, I mean, the right, I agree, the right has said this, but there's a difference between, you know, like Ty Cobb, another guy who apparently if they want to, you know, uh, sew a live badger into um, uh um, if not friend, why not friend shaped badger? <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, um, I, I, you didn't hear whoever the, you know, you, Jeffrey Clark stands out because he's the one guy who talked like Jeffrey Clark, right? He's the one guy who talked MAGA in DOJ leadership. Well, if you're 
now looking to hire Jeffrey Clarks, that changes the conversation about the Justice Department in profound ways. And it changes the conversation about the courts in profound ways. And if it's all sort of, you know, my pillow general counsel types who are filling the legal ranks of the political appointee positions in the Justice Department, I just think there's a lot more damage to our institutions that can happen. And while I agree with you that the judiciary is held up pretty well, um, that's another way of saying the judiciary is next. Um, and that's something that should concern the host of a, of a leading legal podcast. Okay. So here's what I'll say at this point in our conversation. I think to some extent, I'm trying to push back because you're in a like super dark place. And I'm like, well, someone needs to be the light. Mm -hmm. But I'll be really honest. I don't know that I'm disagreeing in my heart with anything you're saying. Mm -hmm. And I'll even admit that like my conversations that are not on this podcast are probably as dark or darker than the ones that we're having now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good, because mine are lighter than the one I'm having on this podcast. So it all evens out. Because, um, yeah, I mean, let me phrase it this way. I think there is a range of things that could happen if Donald Trump gets a second term. I think a lot of people are focused on the lower end of that range for good reason, because the lower end is worse. Mm -hmm. But I think there is a range, and I think the upper end of that range doesn't get enough acknowledgement that we don't know for sure that it would be the lower end of the range. It could just be sort of a less competent version of the first term. You know, I think the upper end of the range is all these people who think like, well, Donald Trump's four years that he got a lot of stuff that I agreed with done. I don't think that's likely to happen in the second term because I don't think they're likely to get a lot of stuff done. They're going to use mm -hmm. executive power. They're not going to use the legislative branch. They're going to have acting officials, not confirmed officials. Um, and so even if he gets it done within his four years, it'll get easily undone by the next guy in office, which, by the way, has been true of Obama, Trump, and Biden. Or it will be true of Biden. If you can't work with Congress, everything you get done will be fleeting. And I was shocked in the Trump administration by people who'd be like, yes, we got this regulation done or this guidance letter out. Whew, great for us. Look at these huge conservative accomplishments we're making. And then, you know, six months after the uh, you know, Biden was in office and all of those things had been undone, they were like, wow, I didn't realize just how ephemeral all of that was. It's like, yeah, well, you know, how a bill becomes a law, man. Like, it should have been pretty obvious. Um, so that's, I think, the upper end of the spectrum, the like best case scenario. It's less competent. It's more fleeting, the successes, all of that stuff. But I think the lower end of the spectrum is pretty bad. And maybe not even, like, I think people lack some imagination also on what the lower end of the spectrum can be. Which you're getting to, Jonah, which is the institutional problem if the courts are so totally undermined by, for everyone, basically. That the courts just lose all credibility in what a country looks like without courts. But let me give them the other institution that to me is more the Roman Republic fall. And I know everyone's got a million theories of why the Roman Republic falls and all of that. Um, let me throw in my own. Uh, <laughs> not that, you know, I'm not a historian. Let me try. Uh, 
at least one of the symptoms that you're going to see towards the end of the Roman Republic is the Senate not doing stuff anymore because they don't want to, because they like being senators, but they don't, they want someone else to do the hard part. That's what we sort of have right now in Congress, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That's why we have all these executive actions is because nobody can work with the legislative branch. So I think it's the darkest timeline is not just, you know, Trump put Stephen Miller as attorney general. Yeah, that's not great. But honestly, it's not the worst thing that can happen compared to he unintentionally or intentionally or carelessly destroys the other two branches. And that, I think, is the darkest timeline. Um, I mean, everyone think it would be really kind of wild to watch an acting attorney general on live TV dislocate his jaw so he could eat a rat hole. Um, so that's, I mean, that would be new. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. Since you brought up the Congress stuff, I mean, part of the problem is we're in violent agreement about the dysfunctions of Congress, and we've gone around this horn a million times. But I actually don't know the answer to this. And okay. I just wrote my LA Times column about this. Are you, were you in favor of booting George Santos? Or did you think getting rid of the norm of conviction first before expelling someone was one that we should have kept? Oh, my God. I can't tell you how much I don't think that that norm is particularly good. This is this falls under my we need to disbar a lot more lawyers and we need to expel a lot more members of Congress. You know, yes, the people of that district elected him. And I take that seriously. But at this point, our congressional districts are pretty big. So the people can elect someone else very similar to George Santos if they feel like their pick was disenfranchised. For that matter, they can reelect George Santos. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, no, I'm, I am for more expulsions, not fewer. And by the way, let's just give some credit to John Fetterman. John Fetterman has quickly become not my policy spirit animal in the U.S. Senate, mm-hmm. but definitely my like, process vibes spirit animal in the U.S. Senate. Not only has he called for Menendez uh, to resign, the senator from New Jersey with the gold bars. It turns out those gold bars, did you see this story, um, were part of an armed robbery. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, in the 90s. So that's the least shocking thing I've ever heard. Um, New Jersey, sounds like a fun place to visit. John Fetterman not only has called on him to resign, but he's like stuck with it. 
and keeps mm-hmm. calling on it. It wasn't like this one-off, like, oh, I've checked the box. Okay, now I'll be able to like talk about corruption without being a hypocrite. No, no, he really means it. No, he's also talking about why why can't we expel him, which is just like awesome. Yeah. I, yeah, so. And his stuff on Israel and Hamas has been great. So John Fetterman, definitely my surprise of the year. And just goes to show you that the writers of this reality TV show that we're all living in, they still got a few tricks up their sleeves that are worth tuning in for. For sure, for sure. And like, which is why the next season of America's Top Dictator is going to be so interesting. But, um, um, by the way, this brings up another thing, though, that I'm curious mm-hmm. if you buy into it all. Because another thing that you'll hear Republicans say is, yep, the, the range in which Donald Trump could be in his second term makes me squirmy. But you only think that because you're ignoring all the things that Biden has done because he does them nicely and he Mm -hmm. does them without tweeting unhinged things. But that Biden is also, I mean, he's been corrupt. He's ignored the rule of law. He's undermined the Supreme Court multiple times. This is not a normal court, all of that nonsense. Um, So if our choices are between two authoritarians, why wouldn't I pick the one who wants to be an authoritarian for me? And what do I think of this argument? Yeah, isn't do you think there's anything to the Biden is also a threat? So yes and no. Um, uh, yes, insofar as I think Biden has behaved terribly as a president in all sorts of ways. You know, I, the 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 executive order stuff. I've written a ton about that. We talked about it a bunch on the Dispatch podcast. The it's lawless. The student loan thing is, I think, it just a law, a, a, a lawless and, and it's a lawless effort in pursuit of a bad policy for bad political reasons. And um, at the same time, um, I really do think that the, the comparisons between Trump and, and Biden are kind of apples and oranges. Um, and um, even though I, I, I thought Biden's rhetoric about you know, Jim Crow 2.0 was indefensible and, and, and all that. I don't think he is the, you know, this paladin fighting for quote unquote, our democracy that, that, you know, people, the Democrats will say, at least when the camera is on, um, about him. That said, there is a de minimis, there's a, there's a, there's a minimum bedrock level of I want to say basic patriotism and respect for the institutions of government that even though he stretches it, you know, and listens to Larry tribe too much, which is to say he listens to Larry tribe at all. um, That is not present in Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump, like I believe the stories that we now are attributed to John Kelly, that he said that the people who died and were buried in Europe, you know, um, were suckers. I think he comes from that sort of family tradition. I think he comes from that sort of political tradition. Um, I think that, you know, Trump was really interesting in 2015. Um, Yuval was the first, Yuval Levin was the first person to point it out to me was that Trump hated the term American exceptionalism. Um, his whole argument about, um, Amer- the role of America in the world was that we needed to be 
we need to behave more like um, basically like the mafia on the world stage, grab whatever we can, you know, take their oil, all that kind of stuff. Um, he thinks that judges who rule against him do it because they're disloyal. Um, he thinks that people who present inconvenient facts to him are doing it because they must hate Trump. Um, and the level and scope and degree and earnestness of his narcissism and his solipsism um, is such that I think he poses a much different threat to the functioning of the presidency and the executive branch and the, and, you know, the mere fact that he was willing to throw away the tradition of the peaceful transfer of power in this country tells you all that you need to kind of know about where his priorities are. And, um, and so it's very much like PJ's thing about Hillary and Trump. She was bad within normal parameters. He was, Trump was bad outside of normal parameters. And I, I think that sort of applies to, to Biden and Trump. What I won't do is start saying Biden's off, awesome just because I think Trump is terrible. You know, like that kind of binary logic is, uh, is completely unappealing to me. I am glad, however, to hear what you had to say about George Santos because um, I did not know this was your position. And this is basically the position I took um, in my column. I was like, I, I disagree with Byron York and Dan McLaughlin and Adam Serwer and the editors of Wall Street Journal. Um, I think that the expelling Santos was a sign of repair totally. um, of Congress and, um, and a sign that they actually, like, as I put in the column, this idea, no other institution that I'm aware of says, like, let's put it this way. If we found out, if Steve and I found out that you were committing rampant fraud and other crimes, um, so, or we got a rumor like that, we would do a little investigation. If it turned out it was true that you were being Santos-like, um, we would fire you. We wouldn't wait for you to be convicted in federal court to fire you. But also, and that's the argument that you're getting from these people is that Congress somehow has to wait until the legal process goes completely free when expelling someone from Congress does not deny them of life or liberty. And that's the reason why it offends me, this, that argument offends me, is it's so reminiscent of the impeachment stuff where the Congress outsourcing its responsibilities, as you were referring to earlier, wanted a criminal legal standard of evidence so that they didn't have to make a hard decision, right? And that's the way it worked in the Clinton impeachment. That's the way it worked in both Trump impeachments is high crimes and misdemeanor must mean a violation of federal law or it's um, not our place. And it is their place. And they were right to expel Santos. All right, I'm done. What if Santos wasn't convicted? Would that somehow make expelling him wrong? No. As in, we have the facts that we have. Let's say for a minute that either that doesn't reach the level of a crime or for whatever reason, he's acquitted, there's a mistrial, um, jury, you know, who knows what could happen in a criminal trial. But the standard isn't we're expelling him because he committed a crime. Then I guess I would say you need to have a criminal conviction to do that. The standard is we have evidence that he told his donors one thing and then used that money to go pay for OnlyFans. Mm -hmm. we know that to be a fact based on our own investigation. It doesn't matter whether that's a crime. If we did not have campaign finance laws, you should and could still expel him for doing that. Even if Congress had never made that into 
a federal crime, per se. So I have no idea why people think he needed to be convicted of anything to expel him. I think that would be a huge mistake. Surely the bar should be different. And same thing with Paxton down in Texas. Same thing, again, with lawyers. Uh, Absolutely. You should not have to have committed a crime as an attorney to be disbarred. It should be a higher standard we're holding people to across the board here. I don't get it. Yeah, so it reminds me, because again, I got scars going back to the Clinton impeachment. There was this great episode of Larry King where Robert Bork, who I confess was a friend, um, not a close friend, but I knew him, you know, and um, and Greta Van Susteren, who I just want to be really clear, I despised. Um, and, uh, um, and Bork was basically taking your position and saying, look, impeachment isn't about necessarily about a crime. And it's like, if you were a federal judge or the Supreme Court justice who was having a similar affair with an intern under the same circumstances, that would be totally grounds for removing them from the bench. And Greta Van Session just kept saying, wait, but it's not against the law. <laughs> and Borg would say, yeah, and, but, but it's not a crime. And judge, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that was the whole thing. It's like this standard that somehow you have to violate federal law, otherwise you're in good standing with, with, the institution that you're with, it's just crazy talk to me. And it actually drives, I think, this over-criminalization because all of a sudden, if it's not a crime, we can never socially stigmatize people. We can never punish people. So we'd better than make everything we don't like a crime, which I also don't think is good. I think we should have fewer crimes and more expulsions and more shaming. I'm with you. I'm with you on that. Um, I I promise I wouldn't keep you too long. Uh, I didn't give you any dating advice. I will say this to the young men listening and to the young women. You should, that men, first of all, should pay for the meals, regardless of whether or not uh, the date insists otherwise, at least for the first few dates, until you get to a point in a relationship where the the lady will be like, hey, look, it's my turn now, and there's something else going on there, right? You should pull out chairs. You should open doors. You should behave like a gentleman and women should expect men to behave like a gentleman. And I know I sound like a fuddy-duddy on this, but this is how I dated. Um, I'm not saying I did not make many errors later in relationships while I was dating um, of, of, of sometimes grand and ethical scope. But uh, the little things are, mad, are really important and they are tells, I would argue, about the kind of person that if, if someone is not going to if a young man is not going to treat a woman that he's dating with respect when he is desperate to have sex with him, um, the idea that he will treat her with respect down the road is insane. Um, <laughs> it's like, this is part of the ante. Um, and uh, it's a really, really important thing to judge. If they're, if they're treating you like garbage when they really want something from you, um, that's uh, a really bad sign. And if you, if you dig it, that's a bad sign about yourself. All so right, I'm going to add some for the ladies. Ladies, if you know you're not going to go out with the guy again, split the bill. It's one thing to have him pay when you might go out with him again or are definitely yeah. going to go out with him again if he asks you. But if you're like, oh, there's just no way, um, just don't. Like, it, you don't need to take his money. Um, it's mm-hmm. a sort of, it's also maybe a signal to him that like the date didn't go that well. 
um, if there's a sort of polite way for you to do that. Two, always say yes to the date. You don't know. Like some guy asks you out and you're not attracted to him. You're certain you would never marry this guy. Unless the reason you're not going to marry him is because he's, you know, a violent criminal currently serving time or something. Like go out on the date. You make a new friend and maybe you're wrong about someone. So always say yes. And if those aren't good enough reasons, there's a pay it forward aspect. That super cute guy who you want to ask you out but isn't asking you out. I think if men knew more for sure that like you could always just get yes and go to dinner, more men would ask. So there's like, if you say yes to that guy, you will encourage him. He will then ask out his future wife someday, just as your future husband will ask you out in this grand pay it forward system that I've concocted where you just always say yes when men have the, you know, have worked up the nerve to actually ask you out. It's kind of a scary thing. Um, my third piece is, has nothing to do with dating. It's for you. Take those pictures. Don't send them to anyone. They're for you later in life when you're old and you don't look like that anymore. Even if you don't think you look great now, you do. You look amazing. There's like this saying that I saw that like really, <laughs> it said, um, I wish I were the size that I was when I thought I was fat. <laughs> <laughs> And I wish I could tell like high school me that and college me that. <laughs> and my weight has gone up and down a lot. So it's not all been in one direction. Um, but yeah. Yeah, no, I, I disagree entirely on taking the pictures. Just don't take the pictures. Just period. Don't take the pictures. <laughs> I don't like the pictures. It's no point in the pictures. You're saying this that because you have a daughter. It's in large part I'm saying this because I, I have a daughter. Um, it will end badly. Um, yeah, but no, you can't do that because then one of them, you're going to get into a fight because so-and-so didn't invite you to the party, whatever, and then they're going to put it out there. Also, like, I mean, I, I, I have practiced a iron rule about not airing my kids' social life stuff in public, and I'm, I'm loathe to get even close to it now, but like... I'm going to speak very euphemistically in the recent past. She accidentally, no picture thing, but she accidentally put on a public Instagram thing, a thing that was supposed to be on a private Instagram thing or Snapchat or one of these things, whatever. And it caused the kind of drama and, and hurt feelings that started the first world war in the Balkans. And, um, And if you ha- if you don't have those pictures on your phone, mm. you can't accidentally distribute them in ways that will deleteriously affect your life. Mm. Um, and uh, but on the body image stuff, I agree with that entirely. You know, uh, twenty five and fifty twenty five years ago and fifty pounds ago, um, I thought I was in absolutely terrible shape, and now like that would be my ideal. Um, <laughs> uh, you know. Wait, and um, I'm trying to think. Oh, I have um, one other piece of dating advice for girls. Okay. That I think a lot of people are going to disagree with. So I'm just open to that in the comments. I'm a big fan of getting the deal breakers out front on the first date. Like, I don't mean literally they walk in the door and you're like, let me tell you all the things that are difficult about me, but pretty quickly, right? Because if they're deal breakers, why would you hide that? Why would you pretend that you're someone you're not, you're going to end up being the person you are sooner rather than later. 
So I was always a big fan of like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't need to like list all of the things about me that are unpleasant now. <laughs> this isn't a date. <laughs> but <laughs> if it were like, you know, here's where I need to live. Here's what I require for, you know, from my, you know, person I'm dating in terms of attention or whatever. Um, here are the complaints that I've received most often from exes. So there's probably some truth to it that you should know. That'll tell you. I always got the complaint that I was cold. And <laughs> like an, an emotionally unavailable, as it were. <laughs> so this is a lot of information to take in before you've ordered the appetizers. Yes. Um, but, but like, uh, doesn't it make you feel like, like, okay, if they're willing to be honest about this, then I can be honest about my things. And then like, yeah, maybe some of those will actually be deal breakers and we can't move forward, in which case I save myself time. But maybe it's like, this is great because I really like the type of person who is serious about their time, basically who values their time and is respectful of mine. Like punctuality yeah, I mean, is a total uh, deal breaker for me. If you're not punctual, I think you are, you lack respect for other people and you're self-centered. So I agree with that. Um, I mean, look, I mean, if, if you show up late for a date and you're missing a foot, like, uh, we can make allowances, right? But that's um, not a lack of, you can be late, like on occasion, and it doesn't mean you have a lack of punctuality. A lack of punctuality mm -hmm. is, I don't really know what time it is. I think yeah, 10 yeah. minutes late is being on time. Right, right. Um, I, I, I hear you about the deal breaker thing, but like there, there are dudes in my experience who will hear all those as they will hear them in the way that George Santos listened to his donors um, as a way to re repeat back things that he knows they want to hear, but not necessarily to get to yes, but aren't necessarily processed in good faith. Totally. And so no, I no, would no. argue that it's holding back some of them to actually see if this person is... Mm organically on their own, authentically, the kind of good guy I want to be with, rather than give him, give him the playbook, as it were, to fake it better. So that's interesting. Okay, I hadn't thought of it in quite those terms. Because for me, like, I want to give you my, like, the things you may not like about me. Mm -hmm. But I actually don't necessarily expect reciprocation on that. And so to the extent that they're like, oh, yeah, I also really care about punctuality that you don't get any points at that point um, mm -hmm. because punctuality is going to be something you show me. You mm -hmm. telling me what you care about from someone else uh, is going to be then the stuff that matters. Like, oh, I, <laughs> to use an example, if you said like, I need to marry someone who is going to load and unload the dishwasher, I'd be like, oof, bummer. Tom Brady, you're super hot and rich, but I can't do mm -hmm. it. I'm never mm -hmm. going to be the person to load and unload the dishwasher in our marriage. So I could fake it. I could fake it for probably a few years even. But in the end, I'm not going to load the dishwasher. <laughs> so like that's, it's the information that you're giving someone about yourself, I guess. I hear you. All right. So another, now that I'm thinking about this more, um, another piece of dating advice and this, um, sort of comes from my dad. Um, if you think you're serious about someone or you think you could be serious about them, take them to, take her to a weird place that's important to you to see how they react to it. So. Please define weird place. 
You know, I didn't know. I don't mean like a windowless van in the woods or anything like that. See how she reacts when she wakes up. When you let the gimp out of the crate, see, you know, if she's into it, you know, uh, no, uh, long time readers, listeners will know like the, the eulogy, which I post every, or I link to every, um, father's day about my dad, uh, was called the hop bird. And there was my dad loved zoos. Both my parents love zoos. We went to zoos a lot as a kid. Um, there was a bird at the birdhouse at um, the Central Park Zoo that didn't do anything except it randomly just hopped straight up in the air. And my dad took my mom to the Central Park Zoo on a daytime date and was like, I want to show you something. And my mom, she, she, my dad just says, watch this bird. And there are all these better birds and exciting birds and weird birds around there. And my dad said, no, just, just watch that bird. And then the bird just ridiculously hops straight up in the air. And my wife burst, my, my, my mom burst into laughter. And this was like this little tell about the hop bird. And um, it became this big story in my family. And, um, um, and I think that those kinds of things, like it doesn't have to be going to the zoo. It could be like a weird dive bar that you love because you think it's either kitschy or fun or whatever. And if they like it, like I took, I took uh, the fair Jessica to T-Bones on Wisconsin Avenue very early in our dating life. And then to this weird dessert place and like just this, cause I, I thought it was cool. And if I think it's cool, then I'm hoping she will too. And she did, you know, and cause it was funny, cool. And one of them, anyway, that kind of thing. This is similar Testing to my people. deal breakers thing. So like, here's a real deal deal breaker that I would tell someone on a first date. Um, if we're driving somewhere and I see an injured animal on the side of the road, yeah. I pretty much don't care where we're going. It can be your sister's wedding, but like I'm pulling over and we will render aid. <laughs> and probably that animal will be in the back of our car. And that's why I keep a blanket and a box in the back of my car. Cause you never know when you're right. going to see that hawk that needs you. And listeners should know you grew up in this <laughs> This this cause, right? Your mom yeah. was a rescue animal person and yeah. you rescue animals. It's a thing Sarah does. Yeah, so if so. that's going to be a problem, because if you're like, mm -hmm. you know, people are more important than animals and we're not going to be late to my friend's thing or to the movie or whatever else, we have fancy reservations, I that is a totally reasonable position to have in life. Mm -hmm. But it's going to cause a lot of friction for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like... I, <laughs> And to be clear, to your point, Jonah, I also don't need someone who's like, yeah, me too. That's not the point. It's just like, is this a deal breaker? Because right, we were headed right, to right, a birthday right. party. Nate was, I don't know, whatever he was. I told the story on whatever podcast. He was 18 months old. And we're driving and I see a hawk that has been hit by a car on the side of the road. I pull over. It is freezing cold outside. The speed limit on the road is 60 miles an hour. And Scott... <laughs> He does not come to help me. He sits in the car on his phone and answers client emails. <laughs> and that's fine. That's 100% what I was looking for in my deal breaker conversation. What I need is for you not to be mad at me, for you not mm -hmm. to like, um, you know, be grumpy for the rest of the day when we end up bringing a hawk to this child's birthday party and bringing it inside. 
but luckily it was my best friend for college. So she already knew my deal breaker. So like, that would be an example of you're telling someone something not to have them agree with you not to be like, Yeah, me too. Like we can do this thing together. But like, hey, if this is gonna be a problem, you should know this. And it's up to you if you want to pretend it's not a problem. And like, you know, try to bring back to your place and like, tell me it's a problem later, like, so be it. But at least I've like told you, like, we're not getting married if you really want someone to load the dishwasher. Fair, fair. Um, <laughs> um, again, the, I mean, I load the dishwasher often, not as much as my wife would like me to, but like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not bad about that. Um, the dishwasher I'm, and the trash are not my job in this house. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely trash guy for sure. Um, and I'm, I'm really good about like going to the store. Like I will, Oh she yeah. Says, we, we need X or Y. I'm done. That is also usually go. Scott. Oh, you had listed your things about pulling out chairs and opening doors. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about one that you didn't list, which is walking on the outside of the sidewalk on the street side of the sidewalk. Well, I mean, that, that comes from the middle ages so that you would catch the bedpan sewage from the ceiling more like from the windows more likely. But like as cars um, drive by and it's snowy yeah. or puddly, you catch the car splash. Or if the car jumps off the road, like you're more likely to be hit than her. Yeah, I, I, I'm totally fine with that. It just doesn't occur to me as like... See, that's like, always been my uh, secret tell of chivalry. If you really know yeah. the rules then you're going to walk on the outside of the road. Um, fair. I just, uh, I feel like this is a conversation I've had with women I've dated in the past and I'm trying to conjure, the memory can play tricks on you about walking down the street with, with women from 20 years ago about whether you were on the outside or the inside. <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm, uh, there's evidence. It's just unreliable. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. So, I get that, but that's also something you can explain to the dude if he doesn't know it, because there are reasons to not know that, right? You should know. It's a sign that you were. There are parents who have forgotten to tell their young boys. But how am I supposed to tell them on a date? Hey, you're supposed to be on the outside of the road, like because you should die first if the car jumps. Well, maybe not the first date, you know. (laughs) Um, But I mean, you're the one who's talking about deal breakers. Early conversations, you know, there's there's a way to work that in there. No way, I, think. I see no way yeah. to work that in. Um, but again, all I'm saying is, is like, hey, are you aware that in some cultures? <laughs> my point is, is like, it's a sign about how you were raised if you're not pulling out chairs or opening doors or waiting for people to get out of the elevator first or you know these kinds of like small. Oh, but do you know the revolving door? So while you should be second, you should open the door and therefore be second going into a normal door. And the revolving door, men should actually go first because it's the weight, like the momentum to get the door moving. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. So I also judge I, men I who that. don't know that and think that I'm supposed to go into the revolving door first. So something we talked a lot about in the 90s, um, and it's actually in, what is it, that horrible movie, Singles? Um, yeah. The opening the door for the lady... Uh, in the car, right? And at minimum, unlocking <laughs> the door. I get in the movie, there's this thing about unlocking the door from the inside. It's like, who doesn't do that? But um, uh, like, do you open the, do you expect the man to open the car door uh, to let you in first or, or, or are you going to do it yourself? Early in dating, 
I would expect the man to open the door, to walk around the car and open the door for me. And for instance, if Scott and I are on a date night, I would expect him to open the door for me, barring, you know, if there's something going on or like we're in a rush or whatever that happens. Um, but like if, if he's being sweet or whatever, he would walk around and open the door for me. Yeah. But like at some point also, if you're just going somewhere, it does waste time. So like you don't need to do it every time. Fair. I like to do the, um, and it always impressed the ladies, the, uh, the full Starsky and run up and butt slide across the hood of the car. Um, but uh, that would impress that me different, differently, perhaps. Yeah. 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 Fair. Right. Um, what about uh, food sharing? Oh, I believe in food sharing. But um, like, I think that's something I would tell people as one of my deal breakers. Like I'm a food sharer. I understand that like, if you don't like that, this is going to be really annoying because I'm, it's going to be instinct for me to always go take a French fry from you. But I had then someone respond, no, um, I'm fine with food sharing, but I also care about having the first bite of my food. You can have my French fries, but you can't have the first French fry. And I was like, you know what? I can probably abide by that. I think that's a reasonable yeah. compromise. I thought I, I thought mean, it was. Yeah. I mean, the first fry, I don't think matters, but like the first, you know, cut of my fish or my steak, yeah. I should be able to taste first. And like, because partly there's a food tasting aspect here is like, is it worth sharing? Right. Is it like, yeah. will you like this kind of thing? Got to, got to remember that. I also I come, like the point of the pizza. I literally think that bite tastes better. And the point of the cheesecake. I can see that. I, can, I mean, I'm thinking through, but yeah. I, can, I can see that. Um, so Jessica and I are very much in a, and, and we're, we're, this is settled. This is just simply who we are. We don't really talk about it at a meta level. We are into competitive ordering. Mm. And, um, and who ordered better is always part of the conversation. And, um, and I'm sure I've told you this before, but one of my absolute favorite German words is futternight. And it means food envy. Um, and so if I order better than Jessica, her futternight fuels my schadenfreude. Um, and, uh, but we're also plate switchers. Like if, if, someone really likes what I have and I like what they have, we'll just switch. And I think that's, cause we're kind of foodie people. That so. is the most chivalrous thing that Scott does on our date nights is when I like something more or it turns out to have an ingredient that I, he knows I love. He will just give it to me like a, mm -hmm. a male bird giving, you know, me the, the worm or the better stick or whatever. And I really appreciate that. So long as he doesn't do it like a female bird and chew it first and then <laughs> give it back, give it to you, you know, desiccated. And you know, like the bower birds where the, the male bird shows up with the shiny blue, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. blue stone. Like that's what I think the equivalent of like, oh, I like this, but you'd really like it. It doesn't count, mm -hmm. by the way, if it's just something he hates. That's just he wasn't right. going to eat it anyway. This is like, no, 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 right. he would enjoy it, but I, he thinks I would enjoy it more. It's mm -hmm. the sacrifice that is the the kindness. And then he unloads the dishwasher. That's right. And that's all I ask. All right. So uh, <laughs> apologies to the people who had no interest in this conversation going on for a half hour. Or, I didn't know that was not my plan. But many of you were probably um, wondering, how is it that Jonah and Sarah have ever gotten married? <laughs> like, the, see, this is how. There are, there, there are seminars that probe this question. Um, um, Sarah, thank you for being on. And uh, I'll see you later this week on the Dispatch Podcast. Sounds good. All right. So Sarah has left the studio. Um, I fully anticipate 
there are people who will say, because I, I hear from a lot of people saying more Sarah content is always good. And I also get stuff from people saying you guys uh, are too self-indulgent. Um, both things can be true. So uh, I'll be interested to see what the, uh, the feedback was on all of this. We're lining up some great guests in the days ahead. I also think we're going to, at some point, um, run, we're going to cross post that, that Crenshaw podcast I did. You should know since I was the guest, there were lots and lots of uh, remnant bingo card phrases and topics that you've heard from me before. Um, but that's the life I have chosen. And I think we're due for um, another AMA quite soon. So if you want to send your questions to the remnant at the dispatch.com um, and ask your questions. Um, I've told Guy that the more serious substantive ones, um, he should give me a little bit in advance so that I can do a little thinking on so I can be more, um, I can do more due diligence, at least mentally about some of these questions and give them the treatment that they deserve. So uh, keep that in mind. And um, now is the time of season to get gift subscriptions for the diff, gift, for the dispatch for the people that you love and, and, and respect or want to uh, um, educate in some way or another. Um, so please go to the dispatch.com uh, and check out our gift subscription offers. And, um, and if you're, not a subscriber to the dispatch, the greatest gift you can give is the gift to yourself. So check it out too. All right. With that, uh, thanks for listening. And I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.